I'm Megan Enan, your host and diva sidekick. I'm a mezzo-soprano on a mission to change the world through the commissioning, performance, and proliferation of new music. Are you just beginning your singing career? In the midst of building your successful empire? Or anywhere in between? I hope you'll join me as we talk about the ins and outs of both a traditional and non-traditional singing path. It's not always easy. And if your experience is anything like mine, we barely scratched the surface of this in studio class. However, I'm here to give you the micro action that over time will transform your relationship to your career. Let's do this. everybody. I'm Megan Enan. I'm a mezzo-soprano, as my friend Hilary Labonte just said, and I'm here at Bowling Green State University. We're talking, this is your vocal ped class, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so we're talking about a whole bunch of vocal ped related items, and I know that you've covered things like anatomy and acoustics and things like that, and you're coming to the end of your semester now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so how many of you are planning on like actively teaching in your future, teaching voice or yeah great and whenever I tell my students this I always say like you'd be surprised how many of us teach in some capacity it's always a part of what you're doing as a professional in the field is passing on knowledge to people that are younger than you essentially and that are also making their way in this professional field so even if it's not in the structure of an academic setting, be that K-12 or collegiate, you know, advanced degrees, things like that, you are passing on that knowledge. And so it's really important to retain this information about vocal ped so that you start thinking about, oh, how do I want to share information with people about the thing that I do? I also talk about this a lot with advocacy groups because that's another area in which it's really important to have this kind of information to tell other people what we do. (laughs) So I wanted to start by kind of running through. I recently left my teaching positions to be more full-time on the road, but I have in the past had three studios with about 40 students total. So I definitely have spent a lot of time in the studio and teaching courses and things like that. And I wanted to show you my studio policies and this is something that I send. I send a slightly different version to my college students that are taking taking lessons through their like structured academic setting. And then this is the one for my private studio in which I am the entire structure. (laughs) And so I would send this to parents and I'm going to read this first part that says music lessons are a regular practice designed to increase your love and understanding of a particular instrument. The process is just as important as the end result in this field of study. It takes time and perseverance to master the essentials. I pledge my focus and skills to your continued success. This is really a kind of pedagogical statement up front, particularly so that I introduce the concept of how lessons need to be a regular thing, particularly for somebody that's first starting voice lessons, so that it's not just, oh, I have to get ready for solo and ensemble. Can I have two lessons? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) That's not how this is going to work. Because I want to give an idea to anybody that's coming to my studio that we're going to work on things over the course of time. And I want to have that relationship or build that relationship from the beginning. And that 
we're really focusing on this learning of our musical instrument, really taking on musical knowledge. One of the things that I find really important in structuring the studio, particularly your private studio, is making sure that you have the right personality fit with students. Too often you'll find people that, that want to teach a private studio because they want to make money and they take on students and they're maybe not the right fit for that student. And it's your job as the adult in that situation and as the professional in that situation to make sure that you don't take on students that you're not the right person for. And so I do a meet and greet and it gives me a chance to meet a student and their family beforehand. And then we go through all sorts of things like the, the scheduling process to have a meet and greet in the first place. I know whether or not they're comfortable like communicating via email. I know all sorts of things like that through just getting to this one first interaction. And so I just did a 15 minute where they'd come to my studio. They could sign up on Doodle. They just come to my studio. We kind of do a little bit of things. I go through the structure of my lessons and ask them, why are you getting into voice lessons right now? What are your goals for this? And a lot of my students, if they were younger, are like, I just want to get into show choir. And I'm like, I, I know that. <laughs> like, I know that feeling. And it would really help us kind of structure how we need to move forward. If they really want to get into show choir, but they don't have necessarily a lot of vocal power amplitude, or they have a very limited understanding of how to belt, that's going to really structure how we're going to start moving towards or like what technical concepts we need to really touch all the time so that the, their larger goal is going to get met while I'm also helping them just pick up lots of vocal concepts and technique in general. I usually have them come with their parents for this because it's a time for all of us to be on the same page and their parents get a sense of like who I am. And, let, and then obviously not for college students or adults that are, you know, people that are living on their own. They just come and we meet, we talk about their goals. And it's really a chance for me to sit them down and really ask, like, what are your real goals? And it's okay to tell me those things. You don't have to hold back and be like, oh, I mean, internally, I really want to audition for The Voice. I just want to sing in the shower, you know, <laughs> externally. And I'm like, no, no, no. Tell me what you really want out of this, because if I know that, then I can be a better guide for you through this process. So uh, you can see that I do a little scheduling location on my resources. This is where I usually tell people that we're going to schedule a lot of things via email, and we're also going to use doodle polls. If you're not familiar with this, or if this is going to antagonize you, <laughs> then maybe I'm not the right studio for you. Then we go through pricing here. So I think this is another thing that some of you are interested in is uh, how do I structure, you know, this. I'm teaching in Des Moines, so my prices don't have to be very, my prices are not very high because this is like the, the going rate in that area. And, but I do, I am slightly on the higher side for that area because I wanted to make sure that I was communicating through the pricing structure, the value of these lessons, that I'm not there to musically babysit. I'm there for this actual advanced study of voice because that's the kind of teacher that I, I know that I am. I want to be more focused in lessons and I'm not very good at the, let's just do some Disney songs for a while. And like, but people are looking for that. And so I know that I can send them to somebody else. So I kind of break it out and I talk about you know, group lessons and then individual lessons and advanced lessons. And then 
this is kind of making sure that that we're getting into the right area at first. So if you're a beginning student, I really only want to see you for 30 minutes a week because otherwise it can get really overwhelming in a hurry. And then, but if you're a junior or senior and you're getting ready for senior recitals, I definitely want to see you for an hour every week. That would be ideal, but that's that doesn't always happen. And this offers different points for people to say, this is how committed I am to this. I would often do what I call like select voice boot camp, which I would do this in the summer. And I'd also do it over things like spring break for them, where we would set up a week and they would come every day. And this worked really well for some of my families that did, that have super busy schedules and voice is not necessarily their first thing. They're really, really into dance or they're re like they're on a traveling soccer team or something like that. So they can't come every week, but they really want that focus. And we would do daily lessons over a period of time. And so they would know what to expect and kind of move forward that way and introduce a lot of concepts. And then I'd see them again sometime later. So this one's really important. The cancellation policy is because I, I'm very strict about the time that we spend together. And if I don't know that you're not going to be there, it stresses me out. If it's a 30-minute lesson, I spend 15 minutes of that waiting for those students to show up. And then 15 minutes of just going like, I, I guess I'll check Facebook <laughs> like, rather than being able to do something more constructive with my time or give that time to another student because I was running a wait list for quite a while. So if I knew ahead of time, I could put somebody else in that spot. And particularly if you have that like 7 or 7.30 time slot, for a student, if you just miss that, that's the time that everybody wants. And if I'm sitting there going like, oh, I really wish I had a student right now, <laughs> then that was really important. And also to put some teeth into it by saying, like, you're definitely paying for this lesson if you skip it. And obviously, any voice teacher is going to put something in about, don't come to me if you're sick. <laughs> so you want to make sure that you're telling them to be very proactive about their own health. And we talk about that. I'm sure you talked about it in the anatomy part of this, is making sure that you're communicating to your voice students how to stay healthy pretty consistently. And that's some of the most important information that I passed along, particularly to my college students, because they're not necessarily used to living in a dorm situation and don't know how to stay as healthy in a dorm situation. And moving on, uh, teacher missed lessons. This was something that was really important to me because I'm an active performer and I would go on the road quite a bit. And so if I was gone, the way that I worked it out for payments and things like that is that if I was gone, I didn't charge you for that ahead of time. And I always invoiced at the beginning of the month for the lessons that followed that month. So if I was going to be gone, I always communicated that ahead of time. We're not coming to lessons this week because I'm not here, but you're also not getting charged for this. And that allowed me to not have nearly as many makeup lessons to worry about for my private studio. I had, obviously, in an academic setting, I had to do all of my makeup lessons, and so that took up a lot of time for anything that I was away for. So I had to work with my college students quite a bit to figure out in their schedules when they could do makeup lessons. And I think that this kind of explains then the payment procedure for those things, is setting it up so that your families or your students know exactly when they're going to get billed, how that's gonna happen, and so they feel like they're also in charge of that situation. They know how to plan for it. And then putting any sort of financial or business information that you need in there so that it kind of feels like a real policy, right? That if you have, if something goes wrong with this, there's a repercussion so that you don't get those situations where, you know, you get a super busy family and 
the person who pays you is like, oh, I just totally forgot about that. Oh, I should get that to you. Okay. And then like, then it never happens. And you're like, (laughs) so making sure that you're on top of that. I've definitely worked in companies before where you buy the books for them and then they like reimburse you. And I didn't like doing that for my own private studio. So I would be proactive about telling them where to get the books, how to get the books. It looks like this. This is what the cover looks like. And it costs this much. This is the only book that we're going to use in this year so that you know how to budget for any sort of other resources. I think this is also important for your college students because you all know what it's like to go into college and be like, I have to spend how much on books, right? And then you get to lessons and they're like, you also need to buy these 16 anthologies that all cost $80. And you're like, what? Unless you're Professor Labonte, who's like, perfect. (laughs) I love buying those books. (laughs) So if you need it, go to her. (laughs) She's a repertoire maven. Repertoire hoarder. (laughs) And it was really important to me to put some language in here for my students about how I think that it's really important that voice lessons are not a financial burden and that that's not my intention in us working together. This is my job, so I do take it very seriously. However, I don't want to price you out of us having this experience together. So I would always tell the parents that if something happens, just let me know. We don't even have to get into it. Just let me know that things are weird and maybe we're going to take a month off or something. And I'm like, yep, you got it. No problem. Because one of the facts about this career is that music is expensive. It's expensive to take lessons. It's expensive to buy instruments. It's expensive to buy repertoire, you know, books, things like that. And so sometimes to keep a student in my studio because they have a lot of skills, but maybe their family is not super well off, we can work out something else. I would much rather communicate that to people than be like, oh, well, sorry, you can't have this. Then <laughs> It's only for rich people. <laughs> and then I would have everybody sign these and, and bring them to their lessons. I uh, wanted to talk about... One of the things that I did was run a wait list because my slots filled up. And so what would happen is that I would use this uh, doodle polls and I would send them out on Sunday nights with any open slots for that week. And students that needed to do a makeup lesson or students that wanted more time together or anybody that was on the wait list could snag that spot. So like first come, first serve. And if they weren't in the studio regularly, they would just bring a check or just bring uh, cash to that lesson. And it worked out really well also helped me like, you know, keep things moving positively, like so that my time was consistently filled up. So I had these students kind of coming in and allowed me to say if somebody wasn't quite ready for like regular lessons yet, I could be like, well, it's great to start on the wait list. And then we could do kind of a lesson here, a lesson there, and they would get introduced to the concept without it being a little overwhelming. I bet you would imagine that anytime you started voice lessons, you're like, oh, this is a lot, (laughs) you know, and it's so personal sometimes. So I think that particularly with young students, it's okay to kind of do some on off time. So I wanted to take a moment now, one of, oh, I wanted to talk about my, the structure of my lessons and then have you guys ask questions. So when we do that meet and greet, I always tell my students, well, This is a little bit about me. I did my master's in opera performance at Peabody, and then I moved back to Des Moines, and I teach, and I perform, and I really like doing this. And I would make sure to tell the parents that 
I was trained classically, and so that's the bedrock foundation of how I teach, is that what I'm going for is teaching healthy vocal technique. And then we apply that to whatever style you want to sing in, because I'm truly agnostic when it comes to teaching different styles. And so if you wanted to sing musical theater, or you want to sing jazz, or you want to sing heavy metal, it's not my strong suit, but I'll help you do it, right, is getting that information in there is that that explains why I structure the lesson the way that I do, but it doesn't mean we can't work on exactly what you want to work on. And I usually say that I structure my lessons in three parts, and it starts off with warm-ups that kind of lead into technical exercises. So, and it starts with the exact same technical exercise every single time I do a five-note descending scale on a hum. The reason that I do it that way is because it ritualizes the beginning of a voice lesson and it really takes my students and puts them in that frame of mind literally every single time. So when they hear that, like, mm, they're like, oh yeah, voice lesson, <laughs> like, like little AI. <laughs> like, and that makes them start to think about like, oh, this is the thing we were talking about last time. This is what I, oh yeah, I'm going to remember this thing. We start that way and then talk about usually one technical idea and we'll do one technical exercise that works with that function. I usually start with breath. I talk about it with my students as breath function, res uh, vibration function, and like resonance function. And I say all of our concepts kind of go into these like three pillars and we just break it down from there into like all of these things. But if you're confused about something that we're talking about, just let me know and we're going to come right back up to where it is. Why are we doing this exercise? What does it have to do with this? And I'm like, oh, because it's a vibration function. You know, we have to talk about that. Or this has to do with your resonance. What we'll do is take that one technical exercise and work on, for example, e-vowels. Or we'll work on breath control. We'll work on vowel efficiency, something like that. And each exercise has something to do with that. And it allows me to think about, with my students, what kinds of intervals do I need them to practice? What kinds of patterns do I need to bake into what they already know so that it just becomes rote? So when we're thinking about identifying patterns in music, you get to something like a lot of minor sixth in a piece, and we've done a minor sixth exercise, and so you're like, oh, I know this interval already. And it doesn't have to be like, what is happening here? <laughs> and then we go, in my studio, we go into sight reading and rhythm clapping because I feel that it's really important that particularly if you don't have piano skills, that you know how to learn music as a vocalist without having to learn piano. <laughs> and so, so I do a lot of solfege in my studios. Uh, in one of my, in one of my studios, it was a big jazz school. And so they did a lot of numbers and I said, that's fine. If you want to do it on letter names, you want to do it on solfege, you want to do it on numbers. It doesn't matter to me. I want you to have a system for pitches and intervals. And so that's what we're practicing here. And then obviously rhythm clapping, because you don't come to my studio and be one of those singers who can't count. <laughs> and then we would take that, and it's really quick. We would use the Ottman books in my, in my studio and, and started it off actually with before the Ottman books had very easy diatonic scale. So we would go through, they would have to identify key signatures because we'd be like, what key is this in? Let's talk about that. Now we sing through it, this very short exercise on solfege. And then we would go into repertoire. And a lot of my students were getting ready for juries, getting ready for solo and ensemble, getting ready for singing at some sort of event. So we were working on repertoire for mainly those reasons. And I would talk about that. And then I'd say, 
there are two kind of um, woo-woo things that I do in a lesson. And the first one is at the very beginning of the lesson, I always say, what are your two intentions for this lesson? And at first, my students would always be like, oh my God, this is so uncomfortable. <laughs> but then they'd get into it because I'd say, what are your two intentions? And they'd say, and I'd say, it can be anything. You just have to say, I want this during this lesson. Really provides that focal point. And so they'd say, I want to work on breath control. Or I want to work on this piece. And it was a chance for them to say something out loud to me about what they want to work on. And so I know what they're thinking about and can help structure the lesson around that. Because if they're like, I want to work on vibrato. And I'd be like, ah, we need to talk about that. You know, it's something, it tells me maybe what they don't know about yet. And it also tells me something that's on their mind. Like that girl next to them in choir said something and I need to talk about that. <laughs> like, so that they have more information about it. And then the very end of the lesson, I realized over the course of many years teaching that if I said, do you have any questions? Everybody looks at me with super blank faces like, no, I've never had a question in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I changed it to at the end of every lesson, I'll say, ask me a question. So plan for that. You don't have to know what your question is ahead of time, but you're going to ask a question. I had and have had a lot of what I call like checklister students and very ambitious, ambitious students. And when when we start that concept of saying, like, ask me a question, it can be very intense or overwhelming for them because they're like, I can't look like I don't know things. And this was a chance for me to encourage students that this is exactly where you need to not know things, right? I'm, I am a safe space for you to ask any question. We'll talk about it, and I will never make you feel dumb for asking. Somebody said this in class, like, what's whistle tone? And I'll be like, oh, I'm so glad you done. <laughs> like, so let's talk about that. So I would always end it, always end lessons with, okay, it's your turn to ask me a question. And they could ask me about repertoire. They could ask me about this. A lot of my students that were getting ready to do, like going into their senior year, they'd be like, um, if I wanted to like major in music and I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> oh yeah. What? <laughs> and, like, and they're like, what, how, what? how do you do it? <laughs> and, like, and you're like, yep. So, and this would work a lot for, you know, for my college students too, is that you're coming up to the end of your time in school and you're going, what do I even do? Right. Or, you know, so many questions that kind of fill up your mind. So this is the point in our talk right now where I say, ask me a question. <laughs> so yes, make sure you yes. say your names. Hi, my name is Haley Haas. Hi um, Haley. <laughs> I think you're a genius. Uh, <laughs> oh, start. <laughs> So this class is actually the first time that I heard of group voice lessons. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who's studying to be a choral director, Mm -hmm. I think that that's a really, really good way for me to use my evenings to get in some students and Mm -hmm. spread that good music making. So I, how does your group lesson structure differ Mm -hmm. from your regular lesson structure? How many students, how long, where? This is a great question. Most of my, when it, uh, group lessons in my private studio usually were people that were working on a show together or something like that. And they'd come in like the way that we're doing sirens right now, it was similar to coaching in a lot of ways, but I would put in information about technique. So it would kind of, instead of like three parts, we would do like two parts. It would be like technical exercises, repertoire. And so if they're working on something together, 
or I would structure group lessons around group lessons. I'm often working with younger students or beginning voice students, because once you're more advanced, you want to work on your own rep and you want to work on your own technique. And so group lessons are often that kind of getting into voice lessons time period. And so what I would do is, you know, use the greatest hits, like 27 Italians, like art songs, arias, those types of things. And so we're all working on Caro Mio Ben. And they would sing through it together. And we would talk about those things and kind of go over Italian pronunciation together. It was really just that here's a technical concept that we're going to talk about. And I would do group lessons you know, anywhere from like two people to, because that's why I structured it price-wise that way. Cause I was like, if there are two people, I'm still making pretty much a lesson fee. If it's more than that. And I would do that up to, I think 10 is like, like bordering on too large at that point. But I've done some group lessons as part of like festivals where I've had 10, 12 sopranos kind of around a piano and we all talk about something. Usually in those lessons, I tend to focus more on a technical concept. And so if you're doing, you know, if you're, if you're teaching like K-12 and you have lessons during the day, a lot of times if you're teaching and you kind of have to bring students in for like, this is your lesson time and you kind of go over some repertoire, but it's a really great chance to talk about specific technical concepts in a smaller group. And so you're like, let's talk about like diaphragmatic breathing and like everybody put your hands, you know, <laughs> like, and that way breaking it down into two con in two two parts the the technical concept and then let's work on this in repertoire and we're probably all working on the same piece if you're doing it in a choral setting you maybe you want to that's where we're going to oh we're going to work on this challenging section the b section of this piece and because everybody needs to work on that <laughs> so the thing that i want to mention about that is that in group lessons it's even more important for you to take on the authoritative role because a group lesson can very easily slip away from you if you have one strong personality in the group who's not feeling it that day <laughs> and is just like I don't know why we're doing this and you're like okay you can leave <laughs> like, but kidding aside in a group lesson because voice you'll probably agree with me but if you teach you'll definitely agree with me that voice is a very intimate instrument in that voice teacher student relationship I'm sure everybody's had a crying lesson at some point and like, because you can't see it. And so it doesn't feel like this externalized instrument the same way it was when I was playing viola or playing piano, that voice is this internal thing. And if you're not used to separating that feeling a voice teacher saying you're doing that wrong kind of means you're wrong. Like everything about you is wrong. And it was really important for me to make sure I communicate to my students we're talking about your instrument. So the way that you're executing this thing could be healthier if we did it this way. And so it doesn't come across as you, you can't sing, you know, like you're non-functioning in some sort of way. Because that's just, that's a lot of the feedback about people who get out of music because a voice teacher or a, you know, director at some point was like, you'll never be able to do this. I don't, I don't want to be that person who somebody is, is out in the world thinking like, well, Miss Megan told me I'm never going to be able to do this. I want my students to always think, oh, well, if I keep like if I keep learning about that idea and maybe keep trying it, then maybe I'll figure it out. Right. And I'll probably figure it out. Uh, growth mindset all the time in my voice lessons. <laughs> OK, more questions. Yes. Say your Hi, name. My name is Aaron Hill. Um, how do you go about finding students for your private studio? Great Especially question. when you're like 
going to a new area. Yeah. So I moved back to Des Moines. So I didn't have necessarily a lot of name recognition when I moved there to start this studio, but I did grow up in that area. So I definitely knew who to contact in certain ways. But the thing that I want you to remember is anywhere you go, if you're starting a private studio, most of those people are going to be high school students that are working in choral programs. Because if you're, if you're at the college level, you're usually taking lessons through your school, right? So if you're starting a private studio, you want to focus on that primary demographic, which is high school students that want more information. And so I would reach out to all the high school choir directors, introduce myself, ask, put together like a little poster and say, would you hang this outside your door? Here's how to get a hold of me. Then I would kind of do that regularly, like every six months or so, just kind of remind people if I didn't already know them, just remind people that I'm in the area. Oh, if you have a list of voice teachers, would you please put me on it? I'm also, you know, I'm open and taking on more students. I might tell them about my meet and greet policy so that they can communicate that to their students about, oh, just go see if you like it. There are lots of other places that you could put it if you wanted to also kind of reach out to church choirs, you know, temple choirs, those kinds of things. You might pick up some adult students who are wanting to have a better sense of how to manage their voice. And you can use things like Thumbtack. I know people have an okay time with that. My experience with using some of those sites has not been great because you end up getting people that are not very serious about it. They just think like, oh, I want to try this out. So I really went to the source of the kinds of students that I wanted to have. That was, you know, high school, high school programs that have a lot of really high level music programs, essentially. More questions? Yes. You ready? <laughs> um, well, hey, I'm Joseph Fields. And um, you obviously seem to be very experienced in your craft and your teaching. Thank you. And I appreciate that. I'm <laughs> learning a lot right now. But as this is my like first what, semester, even giving voice lessons, yes, um, this has been a very new experience for me. And so I want to pick your brain and see how you kind of went about it when you started. Sure. Sure. I started giving piano lessons first before I started teaching voice. So I had more experience teaching. I started teaching piano lessons through a company in Baltimore when I was in grad school, I think, actually. And I would go to my students' houses. And so I worked through a company that set up all the lessons for me. And that was a great way to kind of get started. They also handled all the things like invoicing and they handled getting the books. And I just went and taught. And they liked to use like a certain text. And so that part was very easy in starting my understanding of this is how to structure a lesson. Because in piano, I'm sure if, how many of you have piano lesson backgrounds? Piano. Yes. And so I would bet that your piano teachers used a certain like grouping of books and you kind of systematically like went through the books. Most voice lessons don't necessarily operate the same way, but I think that there's a value to that, that structure of learning musical concepts kind of like the way that we do in piano lessons. So I wanted to bring a little bit of that to my voice studio. And that's why I used the sight reading and the rhythm clapping because it would get progressively more challenging. So I could also introduce concepts like this is how a dotted quarter note works. <laughs> and like, because I'd get, I would get college students that had never seen it before or like never knew how to count it before. And so they just hold it as long as their neighbor did and keep moving. Right. And so it, so it really helped 
to have some texts that we would move through in kind of like a systematic fashion. It also gets, um, so another aspect of that is that I used the Vakai method book with my beginning voice students. And Vakai allows you to do, like the first one is like a diatonic scale and the next page is like thirds, fourths, fifths, etc. And you move through all of that and then you start to introduce things like ornaments and other uh, syncopation, stuff like that. That was really great because it's one one page essentially for the most part. They had one page to learn per week and we would do it in Italian. So I kind of introduced the concept of language learning to baby singers, but it wasn't an overwhelming amount of things to learn. And then once we started getting into solo and ensemble season, then I'd say like, oh, we're going to do these two pieces and with plenty of time for them to learn it. And that's part of being a good teacher is making sure that you know how to structure for your students so that they learn how much time it takes to learn something, right? We were having a conversation earlier about never having enough time to learn something in new music, which is true. (laughs) Um, So it helps when you know that it takes about this long for a student to learn something, then helping them figure that process out as well. So you kind of start with like, oh, this is a manageable amount of things for us to do from week to week. And here's how we're going to just incrementally increase that so that then we're working on like two page songs with very beginning musical concepts in mind. I wanted to introduce, I'm going to see if I can find this. I don't know if you can see this quite as, alas. Okay, so I wanted to show you this, this piece by Shauna McKay, which is called Silent Noon. You may know the Ray Fawn Williams version of this. And this is a piece that I that I curated for an anthology as kind of like a beginner intermediate vocal study because I would use this with some of my, with some of my high level, high level high school students. And then I used this also as kind of like a beautiful English piece that's not too challenging for my college students as they're like preparing a bunch of pieces for juries. And I wanted to point out that a lot of this, when I have them solfege their pieces that were, you know, in F major, for a lot of it, it makes it really easy to solfege. They know how to go about finding this key, doing the solfege, and then some rhythmic concepts. You can see that, yes, we change meter a lot, so that allows me to describe why we change meter all the time for this, having to do with the text. But And we get to introduce some, like you see, eighth note triplets. You also see quarter note triplets. We get to talk about counting those. But beyond that, we're not talking nested tuplets. We're not talking anything more challenging rhythmically. It allows us to talk about things like, oh, okay, what's the difference between a slur and a tie? You know, that even in college students, you want to make sure that they have the ability to describe those things out loud. So they may know that you hold that, but they, if you're practicing basic theory concepts, you're like, this is where that is. This is why we do it in music. So this is a, I'm trying to just kind of show you, give you a sense of like very, approachable new music when it comes to things like pitch and rhythm content. So it allowed us to kind of talk about those things. So this is kind of that that beginner intermediate like function. So this piece called Blackbird Etude, this is slightly more challenging, but mainly you can see that there's a lot of action in the piano. And this is another thing that I would think about with my students when we're talking about rep choices, because there's, yes, there are kind of helper pitches in there, but it's much less, right? So a lot of this is like, make sure that you know where you're coming in on this. You have a lot more this kind of like 16th note, rhythmic choices, 
going on here. You can kind of see here, this is not necessarily advanced vocal rep, but this is slightly more challenging than what we were looking at right before that. Um, another one that I curated for this piece that I wanted to show you, or for this anthology, is that I had a lot of students at one of my schools that were really focused on musical theater, and they had to sing lots of you know, lots of different rep, and I wanted to practice being able to kind of flip in and out of classical and musical theater sounds and talking about how to healthfully make those sounds. This is a piece that I picked because this is Matt Frey's Without a Thorn. It has a slightly poppier quality, and it's more straightforward. So this was something that I could give to a student that was brand new to maybe my college studio who really likes pop music and wants to sing in that style, but is taking voice lessons and they have to sing a jury and they have to sing something from this because then we have to keep our NASM accreditation or whatever. <laughs> One of the beautiful things about being a voice teacher is having a lot of repertoire knowledge so that you know, oh, I think that this student needs to work on breath control, vowels, needs to work on passaggio. I'm going to pick this piece to work on that. Or, wow, they really struggle with uh, quarter note triplets. I'm going to pick a piece that has quarter note triplets in it so they feel really confident learning how to do that, mastering that concept, and moving on. And not picking things that are too far beyond your students and being like, well, just learn it. You know, because that's not, <laughs> that's not a sound pedagogical concept <laughs> to, to give them something that's so far beyond their technical capabilities at the moment, even if they want to sing it, even if they're like, wow, it's so beautiful. And you have to tactfully come up with a way to say, I would love for you to do that in the spring of next year. Here are the three pieces that are going to get us from here to there, particularly if they come to you with like an aria that they're just not ready for yet. This is within the concept of like, it, it's in their fach, like it makes sense for them to sing it. I've had some subrettes types come to me and be like, I really want to sing like, I really want to sing this super dramatic mezzo aria. And I'm like, that's just never going to happen for you. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm sorry, it's anatomy. <laughs> like, and having that conversation is slightly different than we're almost there. Here are some of the concepts that I'd like us to focus on between here and there. Does that answer your question a little bit yeah, about, yes, yeah. And, and I think it's important to kind of focus on how do I narrow in the focus on what technical concept I'm teaching at that given time? Not let it be 16 things in one lesson, but really be like, we're working on this today. I'm teaching the O vowel. I'm teaching this. Teaching uh, coloratura. Pick the technical exercise that goes with that and then help them. If you see that it's not making sense, you can really dig in and maybe you do more of those technical exercises. But if it makes sense and they're like crushing it, then you move on to your next thing in the next lesson. But it is a way to check in with them and be like, are you understanding this? What parts of this could I make clearer for you? One of the things that I tell my students pretty regularly in lessons is there are a million ways to talk about the voice. If there's something that I'm saying that doesn't make sense, just say, oh, I don't know if I really get that. Can you say it another way? And then that's what I do is say it in a way that makes sense to you. I think a lot about learning styles for my students and think a lot about are they primary, primarily visual? Are they primarily aural, like listening? Or are they primarily kinesthetic? And then we do a lot of work to, to work on those, but also work on the ones that are weaker. 
I have a hard time with voice teachers that have orally based students that tell them to never listen to a recording because I'm like, why would you take away the thing that they're like, that's their primary learning style <laughs> and you can help them figure out how to use that to their advantage and then also help them to use visual skills, kinesthetic skills to increase their learning capacity, but to take away your students ability to learn quickly or to to take in information in a way that feels very satisfying to them, I don't think is very pedagogically sound. Hot take. <laughs> sound bite. From yeah. The <laughs> There's the commercial. <laughs> what else can you guys ask me? Uh, hi, my name is Janet Purdue, and I was just wondering, like, what do you do to make sure you're learning the music that you're performing, and also having like a healthy studio and like some tips? just to stay healthy when you're in contact with different people and like germs and all yeah. that stuff. So three tips. Yes. Yes. Well, I, uh, this, this may be a little germaphobic, uh, <laughs> that I would always have my students because I saw so many students throughout the week, I would always ask them if we could like hand sanitize at the beginning of a lesson. So if you came into my studio, I'd be like, are you comfortable hand sanitizing? Like, and so we'd just be like, hi, so what are your intentions today? You know? <laughs> and, um, and it makes, you know, it, it reminds them to do it. And if they were more comfortable washing their hands or whatever, I'd be like, oh, cool. Can you make sure you do that before you get here or something? Mm -hmm. That's one. One of the cool things about being a voice teacher is that you're constantly thinking about healthy vocal technique for your students and running into things that you may have challenges with or you may not, but you're thinking about it for them. And you go, oh, that's an interesting way. That probably applies to what I'm doing too. You kind of are constantly in Good voice. I think it's incredibly important to not be the kind of voice teacher that constantly sings at your students. So if you can't explain it to them, you need to try harder. You need to do your work better. And that means like play something. If they're having, if they're, if it's a challenge for them to understand a certain concept, if you sing it to them once in, in whatever you're doing so that they, if they like to hear things, they get it, but you're not oh, just do it this way. You sing the whole piece for them constantly. Too many voice teachers spend all of their students' lesson times like having their own like diva moments. And then that's one way that you end up being super exhausted at the end of a teaching week, just being like, what have I been doing? I haven't even worked on any of my own rep. Stop singing at your students 90% of their lesson. Uh, this also happens for like in a classroom setting is that you have to project so much more. So making sure that you find the part of your voice that is the healthiest projecting uh, frequency so that you're not uh, particularly as a mezzo, I like to be a little bit lower, but that doesn't cut through like a loud classroom. And so in a loud classroom setting, I'm going to find lots of different ways that my students respond to me trying to quiet them without me constantly yelling at them and also developing a sense of if you're in a choir room, can I bring it down for a little bit or do something else for a little bit so that I'm managing my own vocal health that way. Then working on your own rep, I think is really, is really important is a scheduling concern is making sure that you are not over scheduling yourself with students such that you don't have time to work on your own things or over scheduling yourself in life. You know, it, it's easy to do things for other people or to make money because you're like, this is what I have to do. And then kind of uh, schedule yourself out of having time to work on longer term projects or things that are fulfilling to you. 
one of the things that I like to talk about with students is making sure that you know what kind of practicing you like to do. I'm kind of like a like marathon practicer. I don't really feel like I've done a lot if I've only looked at something for like 10, 12 minutes. I like to get in my studio and be in flow for like a long time. And so I would set aside part of my weekly schedule was that there was a Monday chunk where it was just me practicing all of the stuff that I needed to do. And then it was okay if other days were super busy, but I got like eight hours of practice time. Whereas if, if you're doing a, a practice thing, that's like, I'm doing 20 minutes per day of a week, I'm still getting more time with my music than if I spread it out in these smaller chunks. So that's what works for me. However, lots of people like to do it in other ways and you need to find the thing that works the best for you. Don't listen to you should do this except for you should find the thing that works for you. If you're the kind of person that likes to practice for 20 minutes, take a break, practice for 20 minutes, take a break, like Pomodoro method, do that. If you're the kind of person who likes to really focus for this amount of time, do that. Do whatever your schedule allows too. But then you are, you have a lot more agency in your own development if you are scheduling for the kind of practice that works the best in your life. Or And maybe that's not necessarily like you have to practice a lot of rep, but you have to do lesson planning. Or you're writing an article or you're writing a book and you're like, I have to get this stuff done. You're writing a document. <laughs> I feel attacked. <laughs> okay. You're... I have a couple. Okay. So Your name. Oh, my name. Hi, I'm Allie Rader. Hi, Allie. Um, how do you help students create specific goals? I had a student come in to a lesson and just say, I just don't want to suck. Oh, yeah. So how do you like help them? Right. Yeah. That's a great question. And so I had a lot of, uh, I have a lot of students that say that as well, that they're like, I just don't want to be bad at this. And I, and that usually comes from like, they have a fear about something. And so, or it means something specific to them to suck because, you know, they don't have all the experience in the world. They've got a very limited amount of experience so far. So it means something. And so then I go, what does that mean to you? Like, okay, tell me when you think, I don't want to suck. What does sucking look like to you? And they're like, oh, it means I fail this audition or I like, I cry and puke or something like that. And you're like, good to know. Okay. So what we need to work on is prep. We need to work on practice strategies because you don't feel like you know how to practice and therefore you're not learning your music. Therefore you get to an audition and you're like, I can't do this. <laughs> and like, so, and then you're like, this is me sucking. Right. Or they have some sort of situation where somebody in their life is like, you sound like junk when you sing. And you're like, okay, so let's dig into that. Like, And developing your own healthy sense of like, what is the sound that you want to sound like? And I, do, I play this game a lot with my students, which is like, what is your ideal sound? And they usually look at me and they're like, nice. <laughs> like, and I'm like, cool, what else? And they're like, round <laughs> like they're confused and then they'll say like three synonyms of round and I'm like cool what are some other sounds that describe or like what are some other words that describe vocal sounds and they're like I don't know <laughs> and I'm like let's talk about that because if you are unsure of all of the ways that you could sound maybe you're not exploring what your voice could be right so then so we play a lot of those games like what is it that you want to have happen and then as the teacher, I know that that means 
oh, we need to work on these concepts. That's usually the one. Uh, people that have a, a lot of stage fright, of like working with students that have that, usually tells me that something traumatic happened once and we have to kind of work on that as well as working on musical concepts because they're coming up to any sort of musical experience going, it's going to happen again. And I have to help them prove to themselves that if I do X, Y, and Z, they can start to transition out of that cycle of putting themselves back in the same place where you're definitely going to have that experience again. I don't want that. <laughs> um, when you're going through setting a price point for what you want your lessons to be, how do you know what a good place to be is and how do you know when to change that mm-hmm. to adjust for inflation or your own cost of living? Great. I love this question. This setting prices works for everything that you'll ever do in your life. And so pretty much every artist I've ever known has a number. And I'm stealing this idea very openly, stealing from Andrew Simonet, who runs a group called Artists U. And he taught me this great pricing strategy, which is every artist has a number that they want to make kind of annually. And you take that number and you're like, okay, these are how many weeks are in a year that I'm probably going to work. Say you give yourself two weeks of vacation every year. Then you're like 50 weeks, right? I'm going to work 50 weeks out of the year. And then maybe you give yourself more vacation. I don't know. Like <laughs> live your best life. <laughs> and, like, and then you think these are the hours in which I'm going to work during the week. And then you break that down. Like this is how many students I'm going to probably have like during that time. And then you go, okay, if I divide that, like you just divide that number and you're like, oh, if I want to make, if I want to, make $100,000 a year, I have to teach this many students at this number, right? And then maybe you look at that and it's like the <laughs> the price point of your lesson is like $90 and you're like, that's probably not going to fly in this market. What do I think? And just make sure that you're not pricing from some sort of place of like, you know, fear and like being like, my lessons cost $12, right? It's an hour for 12 bucks. And you're like, no, <laughs> like that's not a good idea. Um, this, this strategy works fairly well. And you can also ask around, but I don't, I don't highly encourage asking around to figure out what other people charge because then you're basing your own pricing strategy off of other people's money issues. This is what I need to make. This is how many students I need to hustle to get to make this number. And then it gives you kind of like a floor and a ceiling. Like I'm probably going to teach at the minimum this many lessons in a week, maximum this many lessons. So I have a ceiling of making this amount of money in a month. I also have a floor of making this. So it helps you budget your own life too, because you're going to have in June and July or August, if you're teaching, if you're teaching any sort of school level students, they kind of disappear during that time. So you want to make sure that you're setting up the budget of your studio so that it kind of covers those months in which you don't have any students coming for lessons. That as well. And that's uh, another reason why I started those like boot camps is that I could, I could get some students to come every day in a week in the summer when they were around before they all left for like, summer camp or something like that. And it was priced at a point where it was like, this is exactly if you would come for the entire summer, you know, but we're doing it in a week. And their parents are already like, oh yeah, they go to like a day camp for a week anyway. This is just like that, you know. There's a, that... Just making sure that you are kind of finding that like window in your budget of this is going to be sustainable enough for me to keep doing it. And uh, and then people will pay me for this. What happens is that if you're not getting enough students or you're like getting students that see you for the meet and greet 
and they try a lesson with you and they love you, but like they are, they're not signing up, you know, that kind of thing, then it might mean that you're too, too high for your market. I've also raised my prices in my studios. I, I did the, I think I did it after the first year. So maybe I would probably kind of check it out. And then I raised them after the first year because I realized that I had, I was like in an area where my families would pay slightly more. And I wanted to have a little buffer for that summer months drop off. And so I raised them and I said, things are going so well in the studio that (laughs) thank you so much for your support. And I said, you know, I'm raising my prices and I didn't have anybody leave. And those are things that you'll think about. So if you're, if you're running it out of your own house, you have to think about things like running a business out of your house and making sure that you have liability insurance. Talk to somebody about that. Look it up. It's not, it's not hard, but just make, make sure that it's something that you do. Keep your own books. I invoiced through Wave. It's what I use. You can use anything that you like, that like QuickBooks or anything like that. If you do it all through that, then it creates like nice fancy reports for you. And it also helps you think about like, this is how much I'm going to need to put aside for taxes. I also, as a performer and as a, you know, freelance, like essentially a freelance teacher in a lot of ways, what I would do is pay quarterly taxes. So if you're at the point where you're like, I'm making enough money that's not getting taxed, like through my paycheck, then you're going to want to start thinking about that. So you don't get a huge tax bill you know, at one point in the year when you're like, I have not saved for this. (laughs) I'm the kind of person who likes to pay them quarterly so I don't have to think about it. If you're the kind of person that likes to like hold on to your money and let it work for you and like learn how to budget and save better, then go ahead and pay it once a year. (laughs) But I'm like, no, no, go ahead. Take it now. (laughs) I know what this is. (laughs) Like, I'm going to spend this. Yeah. I think that kind of covers some of the stuff. Yeah. And, um, I don't know if you recall, we were looking at Joan Boyson's mm-hmm. um, the private studio handbook, I think. Yeah. And she's got that handy um, pricing chart where it's like, if you want to make this amount and you're teaching this number of hours and it's like, ching, that's yeah. your hourly See, rate? that's exactly it. That's like, just find, make sure that you do it for yourself based on this is, this is how much I'm going to work and this is how much, and be honest with yourself. When you, when I started my studio, I had maybe the very beginning and this is kind of like having some students that are like ready willing to take lessons I moved into a market where they needed more voice teachers I think I started with something like 15 students in my studio so don't imagine that you're going to suddenly be like working 40 hours a week when you have to do the building of your own studio it just won't work out like that and so you have to kind of consistently invest in that like getting new students in the door uh, kind of thing and reach out oh reach out to other voice teachers in the area and just be like hi I offered to some of my I had like a friend who teaches in Des Moines and then I to some of the other voice teachers that I knew about that were definitely running waitlists and I said if in my first year I was like would you let me farm team your students on your waitlist so they can come to me for this year and then they like we have like a contract that says they will go into your studio next year. They would, mm-hmm. uh, some of the other teachers, they'd be like on a wait list for a year, but then they would definitely have a spot in their studio the next year, like once the seniors graduated or whatever. And I was like, can I work with them for right now? And then they're definitely shipped to you. And they were like, sure, <laughs> that's, that's great. You know, and they trusted me enough that I wasn't going to do something weird and be like, no, they're staying with me. <laughs> like, and that worked out really well. I had, I think it, 
built goodwill with other voice teachers in the area. And that the, the students that I worked with when I sent them off to them were doing a good job. And so they were like, they knew that they could recommend me to other people that came to them and they didn't have space in their studio. So they were like, oh yeah, she knows what she's talking about. Not just like, you know, somebody who's like, well, sometimes I like to play the piano and I can help you like learn how to sing this song. You talked a little bit yesterday, um, this is kind of related. You talked a little bit yesterday about, um, going to the kinds of events for that career that you want yes. uh, so that you're, you're kind of building yourself into this community of mm-hmm. this desired career. Could you maybe yeah. touch on that? Cause Definitely. I think you had said like, um, if you're looking to really be known as an authority or an expert in this mm-hmm. field, then you want to be going toward this thing. Yeah. And also think about in addition to that, and I'm going to get to that in a second, which is that if you are a younger teacher and you're starting your studio, think about that as like an apprenticeship time, find some other like, you know, authority teachers in your area and be like, can I shadow you for this thing? Or maybe like, let me know if you're going to a convention and I'd love to consider that. I just, I don't know about as many things here. There's lots of ways that we find mentors in life. And so being nice and thoughtful and sending somebody an email that's not too pushy and just says like, would you let me know if something's happening? Because they already know they go every year, right? And you don't because you haven't been there yet or whatever. One of the things that we want to think about is making sure that you become more well-known in the field that you want to be known in. And so if you are wanting to make a life in teaching, particularly teaching voice, you'll want to go to things like Nats, MTNA. You want to be like a dues-paying member of those groups because it suggests a certain level of authority and that you have a connection to your field. Um, In Iowa, we have IMEA, maybe it's OMEA here. (laughs) Like, so, and you go to those things and you make sure that you say hello to the people that do the things that you do so that you start to build your professional network that way. And that's part of what I was doing in Des Moines is just making sure that the other voice teachers knew that I was there and that they could recommend me. I had voice teachers recommend me because I could help students that I could help teach how to belt that they were not as comfortable in. And so I had all these students that wanted to do musical theater auditions or show choir auditions and their, their voice teachers couldn't. And I was like, that's cool. Send them to me for a lesson. Like we'll help. And then I can send them back to you. There was a nice give and take there. So having a professional community that trusts you is very important. Then going to things and that'll help. Like you kind of figure it out in your like local area, also figure it out at your statewide level. And then maybe you'll go to like national conferences, like later in your career or whenever you want to go, make sure that it makes sense for you. And some of those things can get really expensive. So just like plan ahead, save the money for those, those fees to go to a conference and then make the most of it when you're there so that you're going to the sessions, you're getting all the resources, you're making sure to connect with other people in your field because it'll pay off in other ways. If you ever have to, if you're a a teaching at the collegiate university level and you're going to have to recruit for your studio, it's important to go to those things because then you'll find other voice teachers in lots of parts around the country and you make sure you say, oh, I teach it. Bowling Green State University and they and they go oh Bowling Green has such an amazing voice program you have to go there to their you know their high school students because think about your if you had high school voice teachers and you said like where am I going to go to college and they and you know your voice teacher said well oh I know this place has a pretty good program and you were like definitely looking that up you know and it's important to kind of make those connections for that reason because 
recruiting is an important side of being in the field if you're on the higher ed side. Does that cover that? Woo! Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so we've got another about six minutes left of class time, uh, but this is your time. I have her, like, for three more long car rides, so. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this is your time. Everybody has to ask one more question. I'm sorry. So think of it now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, do it yeah. one more time. Okay, this is Allie Rader again. How do you keep it fresh working with all these students, like not repeating yourself all the time? And then mm-hmm. going off of that, how do you work with, I had, and one day I had to work with a five-year-old and then a 30-year-old. Uh-huh. So like trying to keep yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, not the same? No. <laughs> So you do end up repeating yourself kind of regularly. And just remember that like they see you once a week. And so if you're repeating something, it's probably not the end of the world. You want to make sure that you don't only have three concepts that you talk about. I've definitely like been to people that like they, they only like to talk about one thing and it's usually like the thing that they're working on. Please don't be a voice teacher like that where you're like, I just discovered the concept of an O vowel. And you're like, and now everybody has to work on their O vowel for like months. And you're like, no, <laughs> like if they're doing it well, explain, explain the concepts behind it and then be like, you know what I love is that you're doing this the way that it's supposed to happen. This is why, like, here's the science essentially, and then move on, right? Do something else. Make sure that it, you know, it's okay to like touch on concepts again. Just don't get too stuck in something and being like, the one thing is really don't be that teacher that, that is only teaching their students the thing that they have troubles with so that's really important to me and then working with different people in different parts of their vocal development is you'll you can always talk about a technical concept and then get into whatever it is that they're working on and really say oh I hear what you're doing here and I want to work on this thing together usually people if they're taking voice lessons they need that that information at the beginning of the lesson no matter what part you're in. If you're five, I don't usually teach students that young voice. I would teach piano and then, you know, we're working on something different. But um, but in voice, anybody in that, that earlier vocal development time period, you have to go over those concepts again so that you're really filling it in with more information. And if they already know it, you can really like delve into something deeper with it. But then getting into what they're working on and then be like, let's talk about this. So I had a... I, this is a good example. I had a piano and voice student, like I, she was very, very young, like first grade, something like that. And her mom was like, she really wants to take voice. And I was like, I'll teach her piano. And then we can like do some voice, like every other lesson kind of thing. And then she liked it so much that her grandpa was like, I'm probably too old to take voice lessons, but I really love singing karaoke. Would you teach me like voice. And I was like, I would love that. (laughs) Cause he was like, listen, I just want to, he's like, all I do is my wife and I go to the same place on Monday nights and like sing karaoke together and sing karaoke in the basement. And I just want to sing this one song for her. Like, can we work on stuff? And he was my student for many months. Like, (laughs) and so they, I would teach her and like, they had lessons that were kind of like near each other, but we would like work on something 
and I would tell her the same technical concepts that I would tell him, like her 80-year-old grandfather, and he would play me, like, the backing tracks for the song, the Elvis songs that he wanted to sing, like, on his <laughs> phone, and we would, and we would go over it, and I'd be like, cool, can you pause it right there? When we get to the chorus, I really want to talk about how to, like, tank up for a breath, you know, making sure that as we get to, like, the crest of this melodic line that it works out you're still sending breath don't hold you know that kind of stuff and and he loved it he was like he felt so confident going to like karaoke with his wife and being like I love singing the song <laughs> sorry okay last questions here we go can I comment on yes. what you just said I love um, the karaoke yeah Right? I love um, the karaoke students you just had because of my student really loves karaoke. Yes. And so that's kind of, you know, the basis of what I'm teaching him is learning how to sing better at karaoke. And things yeah. Like um, and, like, we talked a lot about, like, okay, making sure that we stay really close to the beat here. Like, mm-hmm. you can hear it. Here's how to identify it. You know, that kind of stuff. So all of the same things that I talked to, you know, my super ambitious high school students about, we talked about, too, just in a different format, mm-hmm. you know? A different format. Like... Mm-hmm. Um, I can't really teach him repertoire because mm-hmm. he's not really looking for that. Mm-hmm. So what you said about like he's playing the backing track and then learning a contemporary song he wants to learn or whatever, that's... Yeah, the very... difference kind of seems like notation knowledge, you know, yeah. um, that it's still possible to deliver all these concepts even without mm-hmm. uh, a piece of sheet music in front of someone. Right. And, yeah. Like I would make him print the lyrics and bring them to me so that I had like a thing that I'd be like, oh, can we go back to here? This is the bridge. <laughs> like, and he'd be like, oh, yes, yes, we can definitely do <laughs> So, you know, it was it was just a lot of fun. And it was actually such a highlight of my day to like get to hear him sing these Elvis songs to me. And I was like, yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's, that's exactly it is just like, if a student wants to do a thing, I can, I can shuffle around the ways to say the stuff to help them have a good experience making the sound they want to make. That's all. That's all I want to do in voice lessons is make, is like help them make a healthy sound however they want to do it. Because my whole goal is to get them to stay close to music in their life. It's not for me, I'm not churning out like people going to the Met. I'd love to have like students that are like my eyes on the prize, you know, we're going, we're going to like Met auditions. I'm crushing it. You know, I'd be like, cool, let's do it. But I also like, I'm going to give the person, the grandpa singing like karaoke, the same attention and like love for the game as the person who's wanting to like crush Met auditions because, because that's the same in a vocal studio. That's my goal, is to help them reach their goals. <laughs> okay, last things. I don't think I have anything. It's okay. See, this is this is the part with the questions where I go, no, start with a question word. Who, what, why, when? <laughs> and then just let it fill in after that because it's a practice in being curious. Oh, this is another thing that I always tell my students about the question part, which is, Practice asking questions because if you're in a course or something like this, if you're the person who asks questions, you go to a lecture and they're like, do you have any questions? If you're the person who can be like, why did they do this at this certain time? You know, and then they get to be like, great, you're A, helping out that person. B, you're already starting a relationship with that because you showed interest and curiosity. And so this also applies to lots of things. I want my students to feel like they know how to interact with authority figures in their life and say like, 
oh, can I ask you about this? You know, they don't feel like I can't talk to them or like anything like that. It, it helps to kind of create that relationship a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's your turn. <laughs> um, do you have experience commissioning things? Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, yes, do I? <laughs> um, how do you commission something successfully? Contracts. Yeah. Do you have a contract? No. Do it. Okay. <laughs> and like, so the commissioning is all about laying out expectations and everybody committing to those expectations. And so if you don't have a contract that says, I commit to these expectations, then nobody's committed. <laughs> and so you want to you want to set it out so that it's explicit. It's incredibly clear who's going to do what, when. And if that doesn't happen, what happens, right? And that helps you get away from the point of, oh, the due date was in October, but I'm getting the score in January. <laughs> like, <Ooh>. So <laughs> feelings. <laughs> so <laughs> that you're going to all be on the same page. If it's explicit in the contract, then you can always have the conversation about, hey, I was expecting this to happen and it didn't. What's going on? Right. If if it's not, then you are at the mercy of that person doing whatever they want to do. Like contracts for everything. <laughs> okay. Yes. Thank you. It's your turn. Um, hi, Jenny Purdue here. Um, <laughs> when did you know you were ready to start teaching lessons? Because I feel like right now I'm like not ready. Where you're just like, I have my master's degree. I'm gonna start teaching lessons. Where you're like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I started teaching piano during my master's because I felt felt confident that I could definitely follow along with like a beginning piano book and like teach all of those concepts. And so, so I felt confident with that. And then I didn't necessarily think that I was going to teach voice. It was not necessarily on my radar to have a private voice studio. And then when I moved back to Des Moines, I was like, okay, I guess, I guess I'm going to like search for jobs or something. And then I was like, no, you know what? I think that I have access to like a studio to teach in and I have all this. And I was like, I think I would feel comfortable teaching, you know? And I I had a very lucky situation in the fact that like when I moved back to Des Moines, I'd started my private studio. And then about a semester after that, uh, I had a friend who was teaching nearby at a school or like a school an hour away. And he's like, are you teaching voice? We really need somebody to teach voice at like, would you consider taking an adjunct position here. And I was like, well, I guess I never thought that I would do this, but let's talk about it. And, and then it worked out that I was like, okay, sure. I'll teach one day a week at this school. And then it turns into like, you know, all of this other stuff. And like, then you're doing it all the time. So it was really, uh, something that I tried out because I thought, well, I'm here in this place and I have access to the resources that I would need to run a studio and I feel very confident that I can help these students prepare for the things that they're that they're going to do. So, and I'd had experience teaching piano. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to try this out. Let's see how it goes for a little while. And then if it's, if it's something that I'm like, oh, I don't like doing it to this extent, or I don't want to run a studio or something like that, then, then I'll wind that down and do a different job or something. So I think it's a matter of saying like, this is what I want, or this is, part of my career goals at the moment and having it lined up well that having access to particularly a higher ed academic institution really aligned with some of my goals at the moment because I was like oh if I have 
access to these things, it means that when I'm touring as a performing musician to have, you know, academic positions at these schools has credentials that like, so people take me seriously when I'm teaching a lecture. And so that was kind of what really helped to, or things that I was thinking about when I was making those decisions. How did you have access to the studio that you taught at? So when I moved back to Des Moines, my parents' house was set up really well to have a, a voice studio in it. And so they were like, well, if you want to teach here, you totally can. And I was like, great, I think I will do that. So uh, otherwise, I mean, I did, couldn't teach in my apartment or something. Um, but then I also, after that, you know, uh, came into contact with this community school of music. And I was like, well, I could teach there too. Oh, I forgot one one step in there is that I did teach at a, a music store before I moved back. I taught at a music store called Music and Arts in Maryland. And... I was primarily teaching piano there, but I also started like teaching voice. So I had kind of like a lead in situation where I had started teaching voice in a very like, and I was only teaching one day because I was still working a full-time job. It was just kind of like a, a precursor to that. And I felt like I knew what I wanted to do in voice lessons after that. So it didn't feel like I had this break. It just felt like I was just kind of like steadily increasing my teaching mm -hmm. time period. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, Oh, well I'll just turn the teaching part into full-time. You talk a little bit about um, your shifting focus that, you know, you were thinking when you were coming into this mm -hmm. full-time teaching thing that, you know, keeping in mind that it's changeable and, and especially when um, it's your private studio that's providing mm -hmm. a, a big chunk of things that um, it's up to you. And you did shift focus uh, at some point, could you yeah. talk a little bit about um, the other kind of things that you um, have pursued and are pursuing? Yeah, well, uh, when I moved back to Des Moines, I was looking for kind. Uh, I needed, I wanted a job that still allowed for flexibility for traveling for singing, and teaching does offer you that because you're kind of in charge of your schedule for the most part, and as long as you complete like the lessons that you've contracted, then you're good to go. And I had, I went into all of my conversations with my academic teaching positions where I said, I am, I am an active performer. If you are not okay with that, tell me now, because I don't want to have a conversation where you bring me into your office and you're like, you've been gone a couple of times. And I was just like, yeah, yes. <laughs> so I, I made sure to communicate that very early in the process and be like, I will, I will always be pursuing this and I'm here. I love teaching. I will make sure that I fulfill all of these requirements, but it's going to be on this kind of timetable. And then I had my private studio and I had uh, two academic positions in this last year. I had two academic studios, voice lessons only. The year before that, I had two academic positions where I had a full voice studio and I taught a few courses. And and the courses are more challenging because you have to meet more regularly. If you miss it, then you have like 30 students. So it was more challenging that way. And so I was like, oh, okay, I need to take a step away from teaching courses because that's not going to work out with the performing side. And I'm just going to do these lessons. And then at the end of last semester, so this would have been spring 2018, at the end of spring 2018, I started to look ahead at my performing calendar for this academic year, and I realized, oh, I'm going to be gone a lot more. 
I can't, there's no way that I could make up all of the lessons and I'm going to be gone too often for what I feel like is a positive relationship with my students. So I left those jobs because I was thinking, I, I knew that I was going to be on the road. So I needed to find something that would allow for, I needed to find something mobile or remote that would go with me wherever I wherever I am at the given moment, like in Bowling Green. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Wherever the hell we are. <laughs> yeah. That's a line in the show. <laughs> like, um, I remember we've talked about this because Hillary and I both worked, you know, full-time day jobs after we finished our master's and we, so we had the, that time period where we were working full-time, gigging musicians, also teaching, like I was teaching like one day a week or whatever, and we were doing all of those things, and it's been a transition from, oh, I had this, you know, full-time desk job to now I'm slightly uh, more part-time, more flexible with like my teaching schedule, and my current job, which is like more mobile remote because I'm 100% flexible for traveling for singing purposes because those are aligned to my goals as a performer, teacher, writer, those kinds of things. Yeah. All right. Thank you all so much for being here. I really appreciate you being on, on the podcast. This is like <laughs> so great. And I think, I definitely think that you all are asking questions that so many people are thinking about and asking about. So I really appreciate you doing this so that I can share that with all of these people that maybe don't have access to mentors that are willing to like sit down and be like, let's lay this out and do all of that cool stuff. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>